if you would open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 4. Father in heaven, Lord, we ask that you will bless the reading and the studying of your word tonight. We pray, Lord, as we continue our way through Matthew and we look at the things that Christ did, the things that he said, the way he lived his life, the way that people responded to him, we ask, Lord, that it would fill our hearts with with wonder, uh, with excitement, with the thrill of understanding the life of our Lord and Savior in much greater detail. We pray, Lord, that it would once again remind us of the reality that Christ truly came and lived among us, that we would be reminded of the true history of Jesus, that again he actually lived, that he walked among us, that he lived among us, that he taught people, he helped them. He was passionate. He revealed to them who you were and who you are. We ask, Lord, that that would strengthen our faith and our trust in you. We pray, Lord, that it would bring comfort to our hearts. As again, we are reminded that what we believe in and what we hold to be dear is that which is really true. So, Father, we ask again for your blessing on your word as we seek to make it a part of our, of our being, a part of our life, a part of our thinking. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 4, beginning in verse 18, it reads this way. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father followed him, and left the boat and their father, and they followed him. So I guess the question that's important to ask when you read this passage is why? Why is it when Jesus showed up and just said, follow me, they did? You know, what, what would have led them to have done this? Why did they immediately leave their nets and follow Jesus when he asked them to? Was it a feeling in their gut? Was it the way he looked? Uh, I know if you look at some old paintings, Jesus had a halo over his head, but that's not how he lived in real life. So it wasn't that. So why would they, why would they do this? If there was anything magical about Jesus. Jesus wasn't the only guy walking around as a rabbi teaching. There wasn't anyone running around saying he was the Messiah, but Jesus doesn't say that here. He just tells them to follow him. And then, of course, we have James and John. They did the same thing. Did they know who he was? If they did, how did they know? And again, why would they just give up and leave everything and follow this guy? Well, the answers are given to us. Turn over to the book of Luke, chapter 5. And this will give us the details of what took place, those events that just preceded this request by Jesus, or maybe even a command by Jesus, 
to these men to follow him, and it would explain why they did. So turn to Luke chapter 5, and I'll read verses 1 through 11, and then we're, kinda, we're gonna go through that and look at some details that I'm hoping will really help uh, the, the story to kinda come to life so that we have a good grasp of, of really what took place and, and what it meant to them and why it would mean certain things to the people that were there. So beginning in verse 1 of Luke 5, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners and the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats. So they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knee, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So let's dig into the story a little bit and uh, see what we can uncover. Again, it begins by telling us on one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, or the uh, uh, Galilee, And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's. He asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So Gennesaret is the fertile plain on the northwest bank of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, In Jesus' time, this area of Gennesaret enjoyed a reputation of just incredible fertility, that basically whatever you planted, it would grow. Uh, It was very heavily populated. So they were at the Sea of Galilee, which is also called the Sea of Chenereth or Gennesaret, and sometimes it's called the Sea of Tiberias. So the sea or lake here uh, of Galilee measures about 8 miles wide and about 13 miles long. So as far as square miles goes, it's about the same size as the largest lake in Kentucky, which is Lake Cumberland. So there's something good about Kentucky. Uh, Whenever you come across that, you can think of Kentucky. I think of Kentucky when I eat chicken. Uh, I I saw a sign the other day, and it says when you hold up a chicken leg and you turn it this way, it looks like Kentucky. And uh, Because I eat at Popeye's a lot, so I think, oh, I think of Tim, now twice, Lake uh, Sea of Galilee, and as well as eating chicken. But nonetheless, it's about the same size as Lake Cumberland. Uh, is and so this uh, this area was uh, the center of Jewish of the Jewish fishing industry. Uh, normally, families would kind of partner together to uh, to own several boats, and then they would hire others to mend the nets. And it was kind of a, a big deal to, uh, to there was a family business and one that you would do with other families, and it required a lot of work, a lot of individuals to make this thing happen. So when it came to the fishing, the Jews would use several types of fishing nets. And one of them was known as the trammel net. Now, this is important because then you'll see why in a few moments. So the trammel net had three layers. 
each layer was made of an increasingly smaller mesh. So I guess you would throw the net into the water and the fish would swim through the first section of the mesh. And then as the mesh got tighter and tighter, it would kind of trap the fish and that's how, how you would catch them. They would be unable to get out of, uh, of this net. So the fishermen would scare the fish, uh, causing them to swim into the trammel net. The fish again would swim into, through the net opening, so they became trapped. It was noted that in the daytime, the net was visible to the fish. So when the fishermen did this kind of fishing, they would always do it at night. So they'd go out at night, you would set the net, then you'd have other fishermen who would scare the fish, they would swim into it, you'd pull that in, bring it up on shore as the uh, sun was rising, take the fish out, get the nets mended, get the fish to uh, market or whatever you had to do, and that's kind of how it worked, and that was their normal everyday schedule. So the text says that the fishermen were washing their nets. So if they're washing their nets, that means that this is shortly before dawn. This is shortly before the sun has risen. Uh, and so this event here where Jesus is getting into the boat to teaching, that's somewhere around 7 o'clock in the morning. So there's a lot of people that are up and about, and Jesus is there, and people already kind of knew who he was by reputation. At least some of them knew. They were eager to hear the teaching of the Word of God. And so they were coming there to hear him speak. So apparently there were those who were following him and word gotten out about him. So there's so many people pressing on him that he gets into a boat and he moves uh, out into the water a little bit. And then he, te- then he sits down and he, he begins to teach. So it's, it's Simon's boat. Um, the way that it's worded when you read it, Jesus doesn't really ask him. He just gets in the boat and tells him, you need to move out a little bit. And he's teaching the people. Now, that kind of thing really, though, was very common. This idea where all of a sudden you have a man, in a sense, out in the middle of nowhere, teaching, and people are coming to hear him. You know, we don't, we don't do that. You know, you, you, if you ever see anybody out somewhere teaching, we're thinking, oh, what's he doing? You know, nobody's going to go there to hear. We, you know, we go to classrooms and air-conditioned buildings or wherever the pace may have to be. We certainly don't go at 7 a.m. Uh, to hear somebody teaching like that. But when you look through rabbinic literature... It says that was really very common. Uh, the various sages, the academics, uh, rabbis, uh, they, were, they, they wanted to teach every which way they could at any time of day. It didn't matter. Uh, their goal was to go to the people and teach. I think part of that would have been the way that society was set up. You know, people had to work very, very long hours. Uh, everything was done by hand. You know, we live in a very automated uh, time, and so... The amount of leisure time we have really is unheard of in the history of the planet. That just you, People just didn't have that um, back during that time. Your, your life revolved around your job, what you, what you did as work. Uh, and it was, again, it required many, many hours. And then, of course, you, know, you didn't have uh, refrigeration, so uh, shopping and, and various things that you would have to do to prepare meals that was done every single day, and then everything was made by scratch. You, didn't, you couldn't even buy anything in a box and rip it open and cook it. Uh, you know, everything had to be, so everything was, uh, took, took a great deal of time uh, for that to take place. And so what the rabbis would do, or some of the academics would do, is they would then go out to these villages and to these towns and they would find a place where people could gather because there would be breaks during the day or there would be different people that you know, may not be working at that moment. And so they would, they would teach them. So they'd sit down and teach. People would come in here, and then the, the rabbi might get up and go to the other end of the city or town or village or out by the, out by the sea and, and teach there. 
And so this was not an uncommon thing. And so a large group is gathered. They want to hear Jesus. It's early in the morning. The fishermen are already uh, washing their nets. They, they haven't uh, been able to catch anything. Uh, Jesus climbs in the boat, which is Peter's boat, tells him to launch that a little bit. And so he, he sits down and he teaches the people. We don't know how long he taught them. I don't know if it was a half an hour or an hour or two hours. I don't know how long it was. Uh, but it says in verse 4, he says, uh, in, 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 uh, we're still in Luke, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now that phrase is really important. We'll get to that in just a moment, but I want you to kind of keep that in mind. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. Now I'm not sure if Peter knew what Jesus did for a living, that Jesus was a carpenter and not a fisherman. Uh, He doesn't say anything about that here. But he makes it pretty clear that the only reason he's going to do this is because of what Jesus said. There was no other reason for him to do this. Because this request that Jesus gives him contradicts everything that he knows as a professional fisherman. He knows how to catch fish and what needs to be done. This contradicts all of it. Be like me going out and telling either the Morris clan or Neil Reagan what they need to do to catch some fish. You know, I'm sure that whatever I would say would sound really dumb uh, and they would laugh at me and I'm sure they wouldn't do it unless they wanted to teach me a lesson. Uh, But the point is, is what Peter knew was that putting out your nets after dawn when the sun was up was fruitless because the fish, not only could they see the net, But when the sun would come out, these fish would go into deeper water. They would normally fish in more shallow water when it was night. The daytime, the fish would, boom, go down. And so you're just, when the sun hit, you're not going to catch the fish. But Peter obeyed. He did what he said. Some commentators say this, that he was an example of Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Because Peter said, but at your word, I will. I think the reason why he does this And again, it's a little bit of speculation, but not really. It is based on the context. Remember that it's Simon Peter's boat. Jesus gets in, uh, tells him to launch out. So Peter's right there. He hears everything Jesus is teaching. Jesus is teaching the word of God. We also know from other passages in the Bible that oftentimes when Jesus taught, that people were always astonished at his teaching. They were astonished because he taught as one having authority. And part of what that meant was not just that that Jesus sounded authoritative, but the normal way that a rabbi would teach is that when he would try to explain the scripture, when he did explain the scripture, what he would do is he would spend a lot of time quoting one rabbi after another. And he would quote four, five, six, or seven to basically say, see, I'm right. And then somewhere else, rabbi so-and-so, and he would quote another four or five rabbis, see, I'm right. So you go through this long, elongated process of trying to prove a point because all these other men have said the same kind of thing. Jesus didn't bother with that. Jesus just said, well, there are times when Jesus would say, well, you've heard it said, but I say. And then he would explain to them the word of God uh, in ways that they could understand. And yet at the same time, it was very profound and very deep. So Peter has been listening to Jesus. And so when Jesus then tells him to do this, um, I guess there's two ways to look at this. I've heard some say that Peter, uh, they, they think that Peter may have been sarcastic, like, okay, whatever, you're the boss, you want us to go, you know, it's not going to, I don't, I really don't think Peter would do that, because again, he's a professional fisherman. Why would he waste his time 
Because you throw those nets overboard, no matter what happens, when you bring them back up, you got to go back, you got to wash them again. That's a lot of work to try to prove somebody wrong or to mock them because they're telling you to do something that you know is contrary to nature. So I don't know if he actually expected to catch fish, but he respected Jesus enough to do what he said. And I do think that's, that's really profound uh, when you think about it. Because again, this is Peter's livelihood. And he doesn't, you know, he doesn't know this man, but he's been listening to him for a while. In fact, it says here that Peter calls Jesus master. And the Greek word that is used there, which I think is um, episita uh, or something like that. I'm not sure. I'm probably sure I'm saying it wrong. But it basically means to stand over. It's someone who's a prefect or a master or a king, maybe the commander of a ship, um, a director in gymnastics or a director of public works in the New Testament. And only in Luke, this word is used to address Jesus. Um, it basically means he has the authority of a teacher, the authority of a rabbi. In Vine's Expository Dictionary, it says that this term is used by the disciples in addressing the Lord in recognition of his authority rather than his instruction. So that's very helpful. So what we're, what we're told here then is that when Peter calls him master, he, has, he, has, he is acknowledging and he's recognizing that Jesus has authority. Now, I, I don't know how far that goes. I don't know, you know what he's thinking because we don't know what Jesus taught at that point, but it's enough for him to act contrary to everything that he knows to be true and obey what Jesus says. And so he is... When I say he's taken by Jesus, I don't mean in a superstitious way. I, don't think, I, don't, I definitely don't think it's some kind of emotional thing that he's all giddy because, you know, Jesus is a popular guy. He doesn't know any of that. I just think he's heard him teach the word. He has seen how he teaches the word. He's listened to what's being said. The word of God has affected his heart, and he's going to obey. If you think about it a little bit, I do think that for many individuals who come to know Christ, you know, when we share the Word of God with them, the Bible makes it clear that the Word of God has an effect on the non-believer. The Holy Spirit of God uses the Word of God on them. Because when you think about the Gospel, there's not a whole lot about it, humanly speaking, to draw somebody to it. It doesn't make a lot of sense. That all of your difficulties and all of your problems that you're having, these psychological issues that you have internally, and these relational issues that you have with those around you, that somehow they're going to be solved by you placing your faith in what some man did 2,000 years ago who was a short Jewish man in this little tiny country. That, just, that doesn't really grab people. Yet, I remember... When the scriptures were shared with me, and I had heard them several times, but the night that I had placed my faith in Christ, even though I was only 10 years old, when the scriptures were being explained to me, what was going through my mind at that time, even though I was very young, was, of course, this is true. This is true in every way. And I completely believed that. I didn't know a whole lot, but I knew that. And so when I was asked the question, if I wanted to place my faith in Christ, it only seemed natural and right to do that. Now, I wasn't thinking it would be dumb to refuse, but it would have been dumb to refuse. And so it just seemed the right thing to do. And I've seen people who are, who, when they come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, it's like all of these other things are blocked out. They, they, they come to, 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 to the reality that they are separated from God. 
And they have come. They, they believe what, what we've been explaining about the gospel. It's, a, it's, it's an amazing thing to see. I, when you see someone come to Christ, you never grow tired of that. You never grow tired of seeing individuals really being transformed right in front of you. Whether they were a screaming agnostic or somebody who had always been very moral and very religious and have just come to realize that they've not placed their faith in Christ. I've seen individuals standing before me who are shaking uncontrollably. And it wasn't because of an emotional message that was brought, because no emotional message was given. But, but they were really feeling the, this, this sense of urgency that they needed Christ, and they needed Christ now. I've seen individuals who have come under the conviction of the Spirit of God of their own sinfulness, who have been completely broken, who were never broken of anything before, and are just undone by the weight of their sin. Uh, and, and just they'll, they'll tell you, they know they must believe in Christ. That's the only way. And so here we have Peter, who is struck by Jesus. And I believe that as he taught the Word of God, uh, that, that as he listened to it, his heart was changed. God was ministering to him, and so it just seemed a natural thing to do that even though this went against what he knew to be true, he was going to obey what Jesus said. So Peter was willing to submit to the authority of Jesus, even though he did not understand all that the Lord was doing, because he clearly didn't know because of how he answered. Because remember, back to that line that I had told you to remember in what we were reading, Contrary to Peter's experience, again, they caught a large number of fish. So many, in fact, that the nets began to tear and the boats began to sink. So I'll, I'll probably mention it again, but normally, again, when they would let the nets down at night, the fish can't see it. Someone scares the fish into the nets. This is the daytime. The fish are now deep. He lets the, the net down. There's no one scaring these fish into the nets. There's no record of that. They just let the nets down and now they're full. To the point the boats are now, you know, the, the, the top of the boat's now going down to the water line because there's so many fish. So when that event takes place, we want to make sure we don't miss what's happening. It's not just some fishing story. Because what takes place is so significant and profound that Jesus, that, that with Peter, even though he, to a degree, recognized the authority of Jesus and let his nets down, when, when these nets are filled with these fish, Peter responds in a very unique way. It says in verse 8, When Simon Peter saw it, meaning that these boats so full that they're starting to sink, it says, he fell down at Jesus' knees. Now Jesus is still in the, he's still in the boat. So he falls before the knees of Jesus. And then he says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So how do you go from catching a ton of fish to being profoundly guilty over your sin? Because there's not a connection between fish and sin unless you're fishing sinfully, which we won't get into all the ways you can do that. But the point is, is that this authority that Jesus has been teaching with and this authority that Jesus now exercises really over nature and and. Peter's very much aware of what's taking place. I, if I hadn't uh, read through all these books about uh, you know, the commentaries and all their, the background information about fishing, I wouldn't have known the significance of that. Okay, well, they, they put the nets down. I guess it was you know, a good day to catch the fish. I didn't know that it was an, that was really almost an impossible thing to do. 
much less the amount of fish that he caught at that time of day. But it's so profound that I believe that Peter here, in recognizing the authority of Jesus, is struck that the authority of Jesus is not just the authority of a rabbi. This is not just the authority of some kind of you know, religious teacher. This is the Lord. This is someone who's unique. This is someone who is special. This is someone I need to pay attention to. This is someone that I need to come before. And he feels that he's been exposed. It's a sinfulness. Which again is a very unique work of the Spirit of God. It's a very spiritual event that is taking place in this boat with the catching of all of these fish. And then it says, For he and all who were with him were astonished. So these other fishermen, they all know that this event that's taking place is all centered on this man, Jesus, who's in Peter's boat. He's the one who's made this happen. And all of them are just literally blown away. So this is not, again, a shared experience where maybe all of us are driving to work one morning and we all see a comet come through the sky. That would be unique. We would all would talk about it. It might be profound to a degree, but not life-changing. But here for these men, this shared experience is so contrary to everything they also know to be true that they're not so much enamored with what's taking place is what it points to. It reminds us of the miracles, not only the other miracles that Jesus did, but the miracles that the apostles did, because as you read through the scripture, it tells us that one of the reasons why these miracles were done was to what? Authenticate the messenger and authenticate the message. This ability, this miraculous event that takes place, this demonstration of the authority of Jesus, then proves to Peter and some of these men, that Jesus is, is indeed the Lord. That, he, again, he's not some super rabbi. He's way beyond that. In fact, uh, if you're familiar with any uh, way that a rabbi would teach, if anybody became enamored with a rabbi and the way that they spoke, even though that can feed the pride, uh, they would all make sure that um, no one ever mistook them for being more than a rabbi. This idea that maybe they were the Lord or they were the Son of God or that they were anointed, that was blasphemy. And so they would, they would have never allowed that. So that wasn't like some kind of a thing that took place. Uh, this was, again, very unique, and, and they recognized that. In fact, when you, read, when you go back to Matthew, reading in verse 21, it says, And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. They had, now they have to mend them because before they were washing them. Now they're mending them because there's so many fish. The, remember, the nets are breaking. And so, you know, the fishermen brought to shore, and they're now mending the nets. And so Jesus comes over, and he, and he calls to them, and they immediately leave the boat, and they leave their father, and they follow him. Now you know why they did that. It wasn't because Jesus came along and had a halo over his head. What it was is they had just seen and witnessed for themselves the unique special authority of this man. And so they're, you know, they're back to just fishing and fixing these nets because of this incredible haul they've just taken in. And Jesus says, follow me. No questions asked. They're gone. And again, we know that's what took place because it's reiterated back in Luke because we look at verse 9, once again, for he, that's Simon Peter, and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And then who does it mention in verse 10? And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, 
who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. So I just think that, that this profound event, which, which can appear to be just a small fishing story, uh, of this little miracle that Jesus did with the catching of all of these fish was much more profound for those individuals. Jesus knew that that would be profound for those individuals. That was enough for these men then to drop their livelihood, to drop everything, and to follow him. Because there's no record of Jesus saying, follow me and don't worry, I'll make sure that you get a salary and I'll make sure you eat. It doesn't say any of that. Just just follow me. That isn't even asked. They just go. They just go. As I mentioned before, again, one of the things I think is important is no one scared the fish into the net. Again, as as that was be the norm, they uh, they did something that was completely contrary to what they normally would do. So again, there is this recognition that Jesus was a unique person. And immediately, as I said, we see Peter's words he saw and he felt his sinfulness. And so that's the thing that I think is important is this being aware of his sinfulness. It wasn't that he was aware he made a few mistakes in life. Uh, there was this very, uh, I guess we could call it this, a personal moment of crisis. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you felt that kind of, it's almost like a panic. So it's not like something wrong is going to happen to you, except maybe if you're thinking about the judgment of God uh, coming upon you. But the idea is that, that you, you know, it's that guilty conscience on steroids. You're, you're very much aware you've done wrong. And you, you feel the pressure of it. You feel the weight of it. Uh, maybe you can even feel your blood pressure going up. It's a very real thing that you can experience. Uh, one that I, we see this happening in the lives of some of the prophets. Remember, we're familiar with the story with Isaiah. Uh, that when the Lord appeared to him, when the angel appeared to him, Isaiah, who was a very righteous man, he was the prophet in Israel. He was the guy. Right? He had his own school where men would come to train, to be prophets. And he was, he was the, the head guy. He was the one everybody would turn to. He was the guy everybody would listen to. And when the angel appears, what does he do? He falls to his knees. And the very first thing he's aware of is his sinfulness. And I would guess that, you know, Isaiah wasn't all that sinful. Not like how we would think of a normal individual. I mean, everyone does sin, and he did sin... Uh, and, and I'm sure he sinned daily, but his sin, the, the degree of his sinfulness, would have been very different uh, than many individuals. He would have been an incredibly moral and righteous person, and he was. Yet the very first thing he's aware of is his own unrighteousness, uh, and that his, 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 you know, the idea that his mouth was dirty. Not that he used bad language, but again, remember that Jesus says that what comes out of the mouth comes to the heart. So the way of expressing that he knew that his heart was, was dark. Uh, with sin, and so the angel goes through and puts that hot coal on him, uh, so that um, he then could go ahead on with and listen to what God wanted him to do and, and fulfill the ministry that God had given him. So that sense then is very real here. That's why I've always doubted the stories of individuals who have said that Jesus appeared to them, because usually what's missing is the falling to the knees part. I don't know about you, but if Jesus did truly appear uh, in physical form in front of me. I would not fall to my knees. I would be on my face. I, I would immediately be on my face. Um, I'm, I've, I've, long, I've, I've long, for a long time, tried to figure out how we can kind of explain um, the moment when you come under that, that sense of conviction, that sense of fear, uh, that terror that comes upon a person all at once, uh, and 
The closest thing I can come to is those moments when I got caught by my father doing wrong. Especially if time had passed from whatever the event was. And then I could hear my dad say my name. Usually it was my full name. Usually just the first two. You know, he didn't say Robert Harold Dimmitt because he knew who I was and I knew who I was. But it, was, it would be Robert Harold. When I heard that, and you know it's amazing. If I had done something wrong and I heard my father say that, I knew exactly what he was going to talk to me about. There was never any guesswork. Oh, I wonder what he wants. Or I wonder what he discovered. There was never that. My mind would immediately, with laser focus, what would be brought back screaming at 285 miles an hour would be that, that event right there, and I could see it. Because I knew I was just, as, as we would say, as guilty as sin. And so before I even saw my father, before I heard his footsteps, when he said my name, I was filled with panic and fear and terror because I knew what was coming. Punishment. And I knew I was guilty. And what made it worse is I knew I deserved it. There's just no escape. None. And that's what Peter is escaping. And I would, I would, you know, I don't believe that we should go, I don't believe we should ever go seeking experiences. I don't, I, I think it's very unhealthy for us to ever seek an experience. But I do think we can do something similar in the sense of, if you've never really felt deep conviction of sin, we should be praying that God would continue to so soften our hearts to the leading of his spirit by his word that we would experience that from time to time. I think that's important to feel that, that depth of regret, that, that uh, maybe a, a little bit of terror, where we have to remind ourselves that if it wasn't for the grace of God, I'm doomed. If it wasn't for the grace, you know, when I, when I became a believer, and again, I was young, and I did know, I knew intellectually that I deserved hell. I knew that. But there's a difference when we have a greater, I don't want to say full, because I don't know if we ever have a full comprehension, but a greater comprehension where it is without a doubt, I deserve that, and I am, and I am doomed, and nothing, there is nothing that can be done to save me from that except the fact that because I'm a believer, I'm already spared that. Where, where you know that you are so guilty and so overcome with guilt that even though you know you've been delivered from that, you still have the shakes. And again, not that you have to shake literally, but that may not be a bad thing. When we compare ourselves to others, I think we might measure up pretty well. But here, what's the one who's before Peter is Jesus. And when this man, who's taught the word of God, and this man does what he did when it comes to the fish, Peter is overwhelmed in the presence of Jesus with his sin, Jesus is the standard, and he already knows that he falls miserably short. Again, notice, though, this, and this is important. When Peter confesses his sinfulness to Jesus, Jesus does not pull away. Jesus doesn't say, excuse me, you're what? Okay, I've, I've, I've got the wrong boat. Hey, that doesn't happen. He doesn't pull away from him. Uh, he doesn't leave him, but he calls Peter to follow him. In fact, he calls Peter and the others to a full-time commitment. 
to full-time discipleship. That's what he's calling him to. He's, he doesn't say, Peter, follow me, and you'll be great in the kingdom of God. He says, you'll be, I'll make you, fishers of, make you fishers of men. But I'm not sure that Peter really knows what all that means and entails. It's not exactly something that, where if you're seeking glory, that's the first thought in your mind. But he's calling the full-time discipleship. That would include trusting Jesus to provide for their everyday needs. As I mentioned before, there's no mention of how that's going to happen. But Peter, this is not dumb. This is not blind. He knows, he knows enough about Jesus to know this. He says, follow me. I'm going to follow him. And he'll take care of the rest. Whatever that looks like, whatever that's going to be. So we need to make sure that we get back to that point ourselves. That we are, and I think what precedes that, and what sometimes as believers we can miss out on is, is because we either are less aware of our own sin, maybe we view our sin much more lightly than we did before because maybe we think it's not as bad. But something to do with that view of ourselves, we tend not to be as, and I don't want to use the word desperate in a bad way, but, but we tend to uh, be less desperate, less, less aware, and so there's not that sense that we see here that Peter has. And so I think what's going to bring that about in our lives, where we, we are once again re-engaged in this absolute commitment to following Christ in every aspect of life, an absolute devotion to him, to do what he says, regardless of the situation, in the way he desires us to do that, what needs to happen to precede that, because we're going to resist that unless we, like Peter, once again become very much aware of our own sinfulness to where we would even want Jesus just to, you just need to leave because I'm so filthy. That's the awareness that we need for us to get to this point so that we then ourselves can be fishers of men. It could be, I think there's many reasons, many, a lot of reasons why sometimes we're not able to see lots of people come to know Christ. Uh, it, it, it's never one reason. Uh, it always bothers me when certain evangelists try to make people feel guilty that somehow you're in sin if you haven't led someone to Christ in the past two weeks. I think that's just foolishness. Uh, at the same time, and we do live in a situation or a time when there'll be fewer true converts in our country. And so we're not, I don't know if we're going to have mass numbers of people coming to Christ. I'm not going to say we, God can't do that because he can but I do think that this is a definite possibility for at least some of us, and maybe for many, that the reason why there's less people coming to Christ directly through anything that we do or say is because we're unaware of our own sinfulness. We don't have this coming to Jesus moment with the Lord. And, and so as a result of that, we, we don't have this commitment, this level of commitment. So there's no secret to it. It's just this. So one of the reasons why we have, another reason why we have our sin of confession in the morning when we gather to worship is by us confessing our sins to the Lord that helps us to be aware and to remain aware of how sinful we really are. It's, it's not a negative thing. I really hate it when we, people get into that whole new pop psychology where we have to have so much negative and so much positive and it has to balance out. It's just <clears throat> driving up the wall. But the thing is, is that we want to deal with reality. And, so, and it's not a negative thing. You know, we're not being a party pooper when we want to really focus on our sins and how sinful and how deep our sinfulness is. Because it goes very deep. I do think there is an exquisite blessing 
that comes to us from the Lord when we delve into how sinful we are and bring that to the Lord and ask him to deliver us and to forgive us and to confess those things, to agree with him that it is sinful and then to thank him that he has forgiven us and that he's willing to use us in some small or big way in the lives of others to bring the message of Christ to them. And if we, if we possess that, I do think that perhaps we'll see even more fruit in our life. And what a great and wonderful thing that will be. What, is, what a disaster it would be to find out that it's our own sin that oftentimes prevents us from maybe leading others to come to know Christ. And so, think about the fish. Think about the nets. Think about the confession of Peter. And I think we'll go much, much further in our transformation as believers when we do that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for this, what appears to be a, a little story Yet, Father, it has profound implications when we begin to understand all that took place. Father, I pray that you would assist all of us to have a greater comprehensive understanding of our sinfulness. Along with that, that we would have a greater comprehensive understanding of your grace. An understanding of how we are to be committed to to you. How it is, Father, that you have given yourself for us and and what that means in our life and for our salvation as well as the life that you've called us to live. I pray, Lord, that if there are any believers here tonight who have, for any reason, taken their sin lightly or have overlooked their sin, I pray, Lord, you would deliver them from that. I pray that you would bring deep conviction in their life. Lord, help us never to try to dictate to others what that conviction should look like. But I ask, Lord, that in whatever form it comes, that they would remember what the Word says. And again, turn to you and thank you, Lord, because you knew all these things about us when you saved us. And you knew that we would even sin after you saved us. And yet you call us to yourself. And fathers, always we know that it's a possibility that some may come to understand when they become much more aware of their sinfulness, that they don't know you. That the reason why there may be so much sin in their life is because they've never really trusted Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that if, if that is the case, we ask, Lord, that your Spirit would make it clear to them that they need to come to Christ, repent of their sin, and confess Christ, that you would save them from their sin. Father, we will all rejoice together over each one who comes to Christ, even if it's one that we already thought was a believer, we will be extremely excited, Father, that you've broken through, that your light has shined in a dark place and revealed to them the truth about themselves. We are thankful, Father, that when Peter made his confession, Jesus did not turn him away. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us. What a marvelous thing that is. Help us, Father, to love others in the same way you've loved us. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.